Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is the 2nd of June, 2014, and this, Scott, it's starting to get serious. This is episode 80. I am Jake English. I am here joined, as always, by Scott Magnus, whose real job is to keep me from running off the rails. Now, if you're listening to our voices right now, it's very likely that you found us on our website, which is birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. It is also likely that you're listening to us on the Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we are a proud member. There at baltimoresportsreport.com slash network, you can find other great shows about Baltimore sports. We are huge fans. They're great friends of ours. If you care anything about this program, you should absolutely be listening to them as well. Um, Scott, I believe that there are some other places that... that Listeners can find the show. Can you uh, can you run that down for us? Sure. There's Miro, Stitcher, Double Twist, and um, I guess there's iTunes until we're removed for unknown reasons. But I encourage everyone go to iTunes, give us a five rating. Um, if you do so and tweet us back, you'll be entered into a contest, and uh, who knows, you might win some uh, cool prizes. Now, is there a contest associated with Creamsicle? Because I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, not yet. It is still in the beta stage. All right. Uh, in addition to those places, you can catch us on social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash BEVcast. You can find us on Google Plus if you really must. We've got a YouTube channel, and as always, you can catch us on Twitter at BirdseyeViewBAL. Um, another place, Scott, that people should be tuning in, not, not to hear us, though we do pop up every once in a while Not to hear us but to look at us <laughs> you should absolutely be checking out post game live on channel bsr this is a uh, opportunity where the hosts from the different shows on the bsr network get together after the show on uh, after the game on tuesdays and thursdays about 10 to 15 minutes after the last out it's a it's a post game show a breakdown of the game we just saw and uh, it, it's it's been well received and it's it's been really great so far you're right we've gotten some great comments um we did actually get a voicemail from one video from one person that was watching the post game. Can I play it for you? Absolutely. Okay. Do. This was the voicemail that was left for left for us on our voicemail. Oh yeah. There you go. That's that's pretty complimentary. Yeah, that's 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 nice. I mean, let's just say the Baltimoreans aren't the only people that can post sexy erotic old men's voices. Okay, I think we've gone to a dark place. We should That's go job. a little bit darker. Scott, what is your drink of the week? My drink of the week is a summer love ale from Victory Brewing. It's not bad, although it's still a Philadelphia brewery, so it gets knocked down a few notches. I judge you, sir. Yes. This is me judging you. I am drinking a gin and tonic, which has been provided graciously by my host here at SD Studios, Scott. Thank you so much. It's the highlight of my day so far. No problem. Well, this the Summer Love Ale from Victory is pretty darn good. It's got a picture of a baseball on it, which, again, coming from a Philadelphia brewery, that's about as close to baseball that Philadelphia is going to get this summer. Jeez. <laughs> I feel like that was a setup. It was a setup. but Are you what? drinking that beer just for the setup? Pretty much. And, and it had a baseball on the, on the label, so I was just like, oh, i got to get that. I'm so proud of you. All right, with that, let's take a stroll through the medical wing, shall we? Sure, let's go into the medical wing. Jake, is anything happening in the medical wing? A uh, couple of interesting notes. Uh, Francisco Pagrero, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago, has joined the Major League roster 
only to be placed on the 15 day DL. Yeah. Now, well, you know, we made the prediction that he'd be up by the end of last week. And um, lo and behold, he decides to thwart our efforts and, you know, prove us wrong. So, yes, he is, you know, a major league player, but he's going to be on that 15 day DL for a prolonged period of time until he can get this hamstring issue worked out. Sure. Also on the medical front, uh, Johan Santana, who we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Um, he had to make the decision whether he was going to opt out of his... his should uh, he stay or should he go? Basically, he was going to yeah. opt out of his minor league contract or whether he was going to push back the date. What looks like it happens is that the Orioles uh, put him on the major league roster but put him on the 15-day DL. Right, which again is a situation where they have to put him onto the 40-man roster and they had a free spot open. So again, if they would have just said, he's going to say, okay, I'm going to just extend it, then he wouldn't have to have to go onto the 40-man roster. So Johan Santana is at this point taking up a, a, a spot on the 40-man roster, which means Dan Duquette can't be as flexible with picking someone else off the waiver wire until someone else were to come off. But you could tell these negotiations were kind of a long burn because that roster spot opened a while ago. That's true. And, and nothing happened with it. So, um, you know, again, they, they put them on the 15-day DL. They get the rehab starts, which they were basically using anyway. Absolutely. With the affiliates. So I think it's a good move for everybody involved. It, it sets an absolute firm line in the sand for Santana and also gives the Orioles more time to get him back to playing competitive ball. Totally agree. All right, I think that's really all of the notable. Only um, other thing I can think of is Nelson Cruz being hit with a pitch and kind of being day to day. But <laughs> do we have to talk yeah, about it? We got to talk about it briefly. And the uh, only other thing I wanted to mention was Matt Weirs has begun throwing again. Um, has been throwing twenty to thirty pitches every other day. Pitches. He's going to come in and close games for us now. What is this? Well, George throws. Tech? Well, hey, actually, he might be a pretty decent closer. That's a good idea, Jake. I'm, I'm liking that idea. But he's been throwing the ball around um, every other day, so I guess that's encouraging. But I'm not getting my hopes up. All right. With that, let's go deep into the twat. This week on the Twitter. So, Jake, uh, let's start with the first thing I wanted to cover. And that was, let's just say the sheriff wasn't wanted in the Orioles dugout. Um, there was a hysterical picture. A little sad for Mark Reynolds. But the Brewers went over to the Orioles dugout while they were in Milwaukee. And taped to the dugout and throughout the clubhouse was a do not admit sign with Mark Reynolds' picture on the sign. Casey Willett was the first one that we saw post this. He can be followed at CDWill77. I just think this is a great situation of the Brewers getting a kick out of it, but also the Orioles getting a kick out of it. And this is the kind of games that are perfect for Major League Baseball. i got to be honest. I, I miss Mark Reynolds. I know that he's frustrating at times, but he was a great guy to, to root for. And, uh, you know, it's kind of sad for him that he he's you know locked over there in Milwaukee and would rather be here in Baltimore. Speaking about uh, situations in Milwaukee, um, Gomez had a, a nice big old flaw, fly ball home run. And um, let's just say a that flaw. He a flaw. A flaw. Yeah. Needless to say, he ran around the bases very quickly. And uh, that caused a lot of people to get a little disgruntled for how quickly he ran around the bases. You mean stupid people? Um, I'm going to let Andrew Stetka answer that. He can be followed at a Stetka. And he says, you all can't bitch about Gomez running too fast around the bases and then bitch about David Ortiz going too slow as well. That doesn't work. Bravo. Bravo, Andrew. That's exactly right. Bravo. I would rather him run fast to get it over with. All right. Let's let's talk. God, we're this, this is a bunch of Milwaukee tweets. Milwaukee um, did it upright. I mean. They did. Uh, another great picture, which translates so well on the audio podcast. Uh, another great picture, a picture from Brittany Giroli, who can be found at Britt underscore Giroli. It says that Brewers concessions with a nod to Baltimore today. It's a picture of today's menu, and the second item on there was Baltimore pit beef sandwich served with tiger sauce on a Kaiser roll and house-made chips with aluminum pints only for $7.25. The sandwich, of course, is $12. It's a little pricey for a pit beef sandwich. Is that like a Baltimore thing? Are we famous for pit beef? Really? I'm asking. Yes. Okay. I, I, if I were asked what is a distinctive Baltimore food, I would not answer with pit beef. I would definitely answer with pit beef, especially pit beef served with tiger sauce, which is on this menu. What is tiger sauce? You are not from Baltimore. I'm sorry. I'm pulling your Baltimore card. All right. What is tiger sauce? Tiger sauce is like a spicy thing of like a ketchup mayonnaise kind of blend. It's good. I'm going to have to take your word on that. Seriously? You never had tiger sauce? No. Wow, you're like the Baltimoreans. You're just faking your Baltimore accent. I eat real food. Tiger sauce is awesome, and it is definitely real food. I tell you what, the next time we go to the pit beef place in Bel Air, I'm going to get some tiger sauce for you. 
That almost sounds like a threat. Uh, no, it's really good. Um, speaking about really good. You were the man with the segues yes, today, by the way. Speaking about really good. Um, there was a, uh, a quote um, regarding from a commercial. And I'm just going to put it in your head. And this is from not Buck Showalter or at fake underscore Buck. And it's better tendons, better elbows, Tommy Johns. I think that is a absolutely fantastic marketing opportunity that is being wasted. Yep. Papa John's, get your shit together. Talk to not Buck Showalter. Better tendons, better elbows, Tommy Johns. Yep. Uh, we mentioned it earlier. I'm calling this one Don't Mess with the Johan. Um, it was Rock Kabako who can be found at uh, Mass and Rock who was talking about when uh, when Johan Santana was going to make a decision, and his tweet was that he's expected to push it back, it being his deadline, uh, was uh, just the date originally set when he signed, referring again to June 1st. So um, that that has come to fruition, but that was a, that was a big important one. Um, that's pretty much all I had wanted to cover on the twat this week. So, Jake, um, we've got a guest coming up for our next interview. Let's go talk to him. I like it. What a wicked game you play to make me feel this way. What a wicked thing to do to let me dream of you. What a wicked thing to say You never felt this way What a wicked thing to do To make me dream of you And I want to fall in love No, I It's a wicked game indeed. And Scotty, I just want to thank you for this musical selection because when you and I decided on this earlier of the week, um, ever since it's been playing in my head over and over and over again, and I don't know all the words. And if there's anything worse than having a song stuck in your head, it's not knowing all the words. Let me just say, watching the video over here on my screen was absolutely pure entertaining. So thanks very much for letting me pick this song because I got to see some great images that allowed my testicles to drop once again. All right. Well, this podcast, as much as it is about your testicles, is also about the Baltimore Orioles. And we are here to talk with someone who possibly knows it way better than you or I or anybody else that we know. And that is Matt Taylor, who is the author of the the blog Roar from 34, uh, one of my favorite places to get a little humor, history, and homerism. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh Hit the tagline there, and I gotta say, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that right back. And I gotta say that any place that prides itself as having lack of insight and baseless opinion makes me feel right at home. So I feel comfortable here. All right. Well, I, I've uh, I've made no secret of the fact that I'm a big fanboy for your your blog, um, and so I'm gonna try to uh, keep myself composed here. I've got a couple of quick questions for you, and then I want to start talking um, about some actual Orioles related content. Um, first question for you, what compels you to write about the Baltimore Orioles? That's a, that's a good question. Um, and I'd, I'd say that at its core, it's just a, a lifelong love of the Orioles. I mean, I grew up in, in Baltimore and, you know, the, the Colts were there for a very brief time. My, my only memory really of the Colts is going to a game with my family and some Jets fans from the upper deck spitting on us. Um, so there aren't a lot of good football memories there in my family, but, uh, throughout my lifetime, a lot of, a lot of good memories of going to the ballpark with my dad and listening to the game at home. And it, uh, you know, I think it reached probably an unhealthy level for me, um, in college because I, I'd grown up loving the Orioles and everyone around me loved the Orioles. And then I went to school in New Jersey and I was surrounded by Yankee fans and, it just made that, that love all the more intense because I had to defend my hometown team. Um, and at that point, it was fun because the Orioles were actually competing with the Yankees. It's a good thing that I'm not, well, now would be okay. But had I been you know, in college a few years ago, it just would have been a, a painful existence. But at its core, it's just the love for the Orioles. And then um, beyond that, I've, I've told myself for you know, years now that I, I was cutting it. This was it. I was done. But I just I can't stop. So keep on going. 
So let me get this straight. You were spit on it as a child by Jets fans, and then you said, you know where I should go and go to college? It was up in New Jersey. <laughs> I had never put that connection together until, until just now, and one of my friends from college, one of my very best friends who's a Yankees fan is also a Jets fan. I'm going to spit on him next time I see him. It's okay. payback time. Yeah, exactly. You know, I would say spit on him at least 27 times, okay? <laughs> All right. You, that, that's, a, that's a perfect plan. I'm glad that I came on because this is, this is really bringing things together for me. Hey, we, we will teach you everything there is to be about being a jerk. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned you, did, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself if, if it was, you know, the, the dark times of Oriole fandom. Let me ask you, I mean, you, you started writing this blog in 2006, which, as I remember, it was not that great a year. Um, and we didn't start winning until six years later. What what kind of keeps you going through the dark times of Orioles baseball? Well, you know, I, that's really where I became a fan of Orioles history and incorporated that into the blog because <laughs> out of necessity, you know, you start out, of, out of necessity. Yeah, you, you have to produce new content, and there's only so many ways that you can say, "Boy, this team really sucks." Um, and you know, in addition to that, there's also kind of this realization that was a watching the team be so bad and this great franchise just turn into this miserable, you know, sort of butt of the joke. Um, I thought, I want to know more about the glory days and all the great players that played here. And, you know, so let me learn more about this and let me share some of those stories and remind people that, Hey, they're terrible now, but they were once, you know, right there at the top, one of the best uh, kind of a model franchise in baseball. So it was um, both to, to provide regular content, but then also kind of a larger goal of just reminding folks and reminding myself that, hey, this is a really proud franchise with a, a proud history. And um, what we're seeing now isn't representative of the, the product in the whole. Well, since you're such a fan of uh, Orioles history, let me ask you this question. Out of all of Orioles history, who's your favorite player? I would probably say um, I'm, I'm going to go with a, a rare find. I like the guys that uh, you don't hear as much about. And the guy that I discovered that I've really become um, enamored with is, is Willie Tasby, who played, played very briefly for the Orioles and um, were kind of four Field of Dreams was a thing. It was shoeless Willie Tasby because he actually took off his shoes and played barefoot in center field at Memorial Stadium because there'd been lightning that I guess delayed the game, I believe it was. And he was afraid of getting struck by lightning. So he played the last out or two of the game without shoes on. And so that was the hook where I said, this guy's really interesting. Um, but then as I learned more about him, the guy had you know, a pretty interesting history of one of these guys that had played in the Negro leagues for a number of years and um, done some important things there. And then um, was actually, uh, there's I guess when Ted Williams played his last game, in Boston, um, Tasby was in the batting order that day. I think he played catch with Ted Williams. So I thought this guy's got some real neat historical connections and, and also a pretty neat story there on the, the front end of, um, of being shoeless there in center field. So I like the, the kind of the rare finds and, and Tasby is, uh, is one of those. In terms of guys I've actually seen play, I was, I was a big Sam Horton fan growing up, completely irrational in that kid sort of way of, that guy hits the ball really far. So he's my favorite player. Um, and so I'm a, I'm a huge Sam Horn fan. Um, and, you know, one of the, the moments I talk about with Sam Horn is the long foul ball that he almost hit out of Memorial Stadium. So that tells you when the guy that's your favorite is the guy that you describe to people in terms of a long foul ball that he hit, that tells you a lot about your favorite player. Yeah, you know, somewhere out there, I know there's some special kid out there that says, gosh, Mark Reynolds was my favorite player for the 2012 Orioles. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, that, that puts in kind of a perspective. I think my, my fandom for Sam Horn just went down a whole notch. Well, that's, well, that's our job here is to bring everyone down a notch, <laughs> down to our level. All right. Um, one of the things that I, I think that we've we've kind of connected on from afar through the the Twitterverse and and you know by, by reading each other's work besides is, pictures is is the fact that uh, baseball for us is a family affair and uh, you you have kids um, and so they're, they're young they're young still you have you have plenty of time to ruin them but I, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about what it's like being a baseball fan and a father who is. Uh, trying to pass, uh, you know, the good part of baseball down to the next generation. Well, I, I told myself before 
my son was born. My two kids, the son's the oldest, he's three now. But before my son was born, I was telling myself that, you know, I was going to let him be his own man and, and, and every way, and that included sports. You know, he could cheer for whoever he wanted. Um, and, you know, that's the naive, I'm about to have a kid, dad talking. Um, and then reality strikes, and, and I realized that, you know, this kid's got to be an Orioles fan. And um, it hasn't even happened on, on purpose, though. I've, I've realized how effectively you can brainwash a child really without trying. Um, it's the whole children learn what they live um, type motto of, you know, I've got the games on all the time that, you know, love to watch them on Madison, but there's a whole period of the game when you know, I've got to get my son ready for bed and we're going through bath time and everything else. So I've got, you know, got the game on on the MLB at, at bat and listening to it. And you can just see my, my son picks up the names and all of a sudden knows who the players are and he'll start repeating those and cheering for J.J. Hardy. And um, and it, it goes beyond me. I mean, you know, I got my, you know, fandom for the Orioles through my father. And so when he comes to visit, it's, you know, Orioles gifts. It's, oh, here's a Chris Davis bobblehead, which frankly, I was a little upset that the kid got the Chris Davis bobblehead <laughs> and I didn't. Um, but, you know, Chris Davis becomes his favorite player. So I'm thinking, man, I, here I went just in, in three short years from the kid can cheer for whoever he wants to, wow, I've got a passionate little Orioles fan on, on my hands. And just imagine what we can do with this. <laughs> so I just hope that he never goes through a period in his life of 14 years of losing. Um, but, um, you know, there, there are no guarantees. So I just hope that I think we're already seeing signs. He'll be loyal no matter what, because that's, that's what you do. But uh, it really is a joy to take him to the camping yards when I can. It's not nearly as often as I want. But um, in the absence of that, I love seeing him pick up, you know, what, what he's hearing here on the, the game broadcast and watching the game on TV. And I can't argue with the kid, you know, when, he, when you put him down for bed and he comes into the room and it's, you know, a million excuses, I need a glass of water, you know, I need to use the potty, all this sort of thing. All those things are like, come on, get back in bed. But when he comes in and the Orioles game is on TV and he kind of starts looking at it, it's like, I tell my wife take the lead on that one. Like, I'm going to let this go. If he wants to stay up a little longer to watch the Orioles game, who am I to argue with that? Yeah, the review stands basically. Um, as long as he doesn't come in and just like, hey, Dad, I decided to be a Jets fan. Everything's kosher, basically. <laughs> If he does that, I'll spit on him. Well, no, you can just donate him to like you know the Catholic Church and just be like, "Hey, the nuns will take care of him." That worked out well for Jake. So I think, I think you can drop off children at certain locations, you know, regardless of their age. I I keep threatening my daughter with that. So as Jake has said, we are major fans of War from Thirty Four, and there has been so many great posts on War from Thirty Four, at least in my opinion. That you know, it's hard to pick a really great one. What's been your favorite post to write about and talk about on War from Thirty Four? Ooh, um, boy, that's a that's a good question. Um, you, you guys ask the good ones, don't you? No, no, not really. No, not really. <laughs> um, I, I think the ones that I do enjoy the most um, are are probably the you know, the flashback Friday pieces that, that look at Orioles history, um, and one I haven't been as good about lately, but the the Utah Street Chronicles, and that that you know the Utah Street Chronicles just goes back to the you know, first Utah street Homer and tells the story behind it. You know, like the first one was Mickey Tettleton. So rather than just having a name and a date, it gives, you know, here's Mickey Tettleton. He's playing for the, uh, I believe it was the Tigers. There's the, the Tigers. Time, yeah. Uh, former Oriole. And just gives some of the backstory behind it. And that whole thing came about. And, and, you know, to be honest, I was surprised that there wasn't this collection of stories already that, you know, you got all these baseballs out on Utah Street, and if you watch folks when they go to take the tour at the stadium, you know, they all end up at some point in that spot staring at the ground, looking at all these different baseballs. And I thought, surely there's got to be these stories collected somewhere. Um, and so I was surprised that they weren't. Now, the Orioles have you know, started to do that more on the website with at least you know putting out there publicly where the homers landed and who it is on the website and that sort of thing. But still, I like the stories behind it um, to see – what was going on at the time? You know, what, what led up to this? Um, how, how much and, an opponent's you know, home run broke your heart? <laughs> yeah, there, there are too, too many of those, and there are certain ones that are a little bit harder to tell. Uh, you know, I think uh, good old David Ortiz has some out there that uh, the story might not be as told in as friendly of a manner. Um, but uh, but that, that's probably the ones that, you know, it's funny. That, I say that's the ones I enjoy the most, and that's one that I've really fallen off on recently but need to, to get back into gear because – I just think it's a cool feature of the ballpark, and I know that this long in, some folks might feel like it loses its charm, but I, I still get excited when a ball hits Utah Street and 
I'm waiting for the day when someone hits the warehouse and you know that that's going to be uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know. Your blog was a really great historical perspective on the Orioles. And I think, like we were just talking about with Utah Street, I think the Orioles really, for a time there, were ignoring history to a certain point. You know, they started to move away from orange and were really focusing more on the black. And they, you know, didn't focus so much on the past as much as, you know, other teams had. And then in 2012, you know, we started building the statues and various modifications were made to Canyon Yards. And it really was a greater reflection and appreciation for A, the players that had played on this team before. You had Frank Robinson coming back into the dugout and visiting with the players as well. You know, I think Buck was a big proponent of that and saying the Oriole way is not just about, you know, going and competing with their King League East. It's about... Um, the great franchise, which it is. So I think we have Buck to thank for that and just giving a greater appreciation for the history of the Orioles and how important it is for this generation as well. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's spot on. I, I think that you know, 2012 is so pivotal, pivotal, and I love what they did with the statues, but also the, the ceremony around it. And I can remember we were um, driving to meet up with my wife's family um, in, the, in the middle of nowhere pretty much, but I was still able to, to get the... Um, game broadcast on my phone and it was the day that they did um, Earl Weaver's statue and his whole ceremony. And so you got to listen to Earl, you know, in the booth talking about the game. And then, you know, not long after that, Earl passes away. So it's like they caught it at just uh, the yep. right time to include that. And um, if, if Buck is the one who deserves the credit, I mean, more, more power to him. We saw what he did with the Frank Robinson essay there during spring training. And um, I, I, I'm very pleased. I, I think you're absolutely right that the Orioles have suddenly turned this corner where they're embracing the history um, that was there. And I think those guys deserve it. And, and I'm glad to see that the team is, is you know, um, going back and, and really spotlighting that more. I think that's what they should be doing. Yeah. Funny story during the or we were uh, ceremony. I was there in, in attendance and a little Asian man stood on my feet during the whole ceremony. So that, that's my funny story for the or Weaver ceremony. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a moment you can pass down to, to future generations. Exactly. As like, the last time I saw Earl Weaver, a little Asian man stood on me. <laughs> the the beauty of this this audio medium is that you can't see me shaking my head in shame at Scott right now. <laughs> I have one more question for Matt. And Matt, it's the most important question of all. What's your drink of the week? My drink of the week it combines two of my favorite things, and I can't say it's my own original creation. I, I got it from a restaurant, Flying Biscuit Cafe, um, but it is a pint of Guinness with a shot of espresso mixed in. combines two of my favorite things. I, I don't replicate it as well at home as they do it there, but it's worth it to keep trying, and I'm going to keep trying. Can I just <laughs> say that this might be the most hoity-toity drink I've ever heard on this podcast? <laughs> That that might be the first time I've been called hoity-toity. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I think that might be the first time I've ever used the words hoity-toity. So <laughs> a, a lot of the times, our our drinks wink back at us. So you know, we we're uh, we've got a little bit of a complex going on. Okay, well, I'm I'm kind of an all or nothing guy when it comes to to beer. So it's it's the bow or it's the Guinness, and there's there's no in between. And I'm a pretty cheap guy myself, so I'm I'm happy to say that it's the bow most often. And then the Guinness will sneak in there for a rare treat. All right. Well, we've we've asked you here to to bring some legitimacy to this proceeding here. We want to ask you a little bit about about the the Orioles, the way things are going. But we really want to talk about the season that Nelson Cruz has had. So Nelson Cruz has been absolutely destroying pitching so far this this, this season. His numbers are very comparable to Chris Davis so far through the end of May. However, at least in our opinion, there seems to be a lot less cheering and respect for him both nationally and in Baltimore um, because of last year. So, uh, Matt, yeah. do, you, do you have any thoughts about you know about that and how how that might be coming about? Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's fascinating that you know, I, I wrote a, a post, um, I did a guest blog for Mass and each Friday, and my Friday post turned into a look at the the home Orioles single season home run list. Um, in the past and who's, who's been pushed off that list as more recent players have gone on it. And I love that post, but to be honest with you, it was kind of the safe approach. The, the, the post that I originally wanted to write was about, you know, are we as, as Orioles fans ready and willing to embrace Nelson Cruz if he were to go and break Chris Davis's single season home run record um, because of those allegations in the past. And, you know, I feel like, Nelson Cruz is kind of personally, and I'm, I'm sure it's the case for a lot of other fans, 
painted me to a corner to some degree because I, you know, I do not like Boston and I particularly don't like David Ortiz. And when I watch him having success now, I still will say, yeah, but that's a guy that they already got him, you know, and I'm sure he's still doing it and just hasn't been caught and all that sort of thing. And now it's the guy that's leading my team and hitting for all the power is a guy that was caught just last year. So I, I can see why nationally fans wouldn't embrace it and, and why locally, you know, fans might, might have trouble with it. What I, what I find interesting for myself is that, you know, I'm doing the same thing I did with Davis last year is that I, I feel like, Oh, well, I can't keep up. You know, I remember looking at Davis and numbers thinking, man, this guy's really on quite a pace, but I wasn't ready to go out there and say, Hey, check it out. This, this guy could do it. He could do it. You know, that's not, that's not, what the current baseball fans supposed to do, you know, with all the focus on statistics and sample size, you're not supposed to get excited like that. So I didn't allow myself to really get excited about Davis until it became pretty obvious that it really was something special. And I feel like I'm doing the same thing with Cruz, you know, the, the PED stuff, even with that aside, I'm like, yeah, but can you keep it up? You know, it's like, well, why not? Davis did and, and Cruz could too. Um, but uh, it, it is interesting to see he hasn't been, been embraced um, I think you're right, fully on the local level and, and on the national level, although it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens as we get to the all-star break and, um, you know, we'll really get to think more of a sense of how fans are responding to Cruz um, beyond Baltimore. Well, let me ask you this. I, I think you're spot on about the the difficult situation that Orioles fans and, and baseball fans are put in uh, when it comes to cheering for a guy who's been linked to uh, PEDs, but to bring it back to a more provincial, you know, Baltimore fan perspective, here's something that that I know that eats at me, and I, and I wonder if this if this you know creeps into your thoughts at all, and that is that for better or for wor- worse, Nelson Cruz is a mercenary, and mercenaries are never to be accepted, according to Niccolo Machiavelli and the Prince. So he he's a guy who's here because now he's being hoity-toity. Yeah, now <laughs> <laughs> he's a guy who's here because his agent misplayed the off season. He's a guy who's here at a discount, and that's the only reason we've got him. And he's playing out of his mind, which means that he's going to make a huge paycheck next year. And there's no way that the Orioles are going to keep him, particularly if they hope to keep their their quote-unquote hometown guys. And I think that the difference between Cruz and Davis in this respect is that Davis was a part of that magical 2012 season. And in that mm-hmm. season, he cemented himself as an everyday player, as a major leaguer. But he also had those flashes of, of brilliance. You know, there was that uh, game where he, he closed out against the, the Red Sox. He, you know, he played third, he played first, he played right field, he played left field. He did everything he could to help the team during that season. So he's he, Bugs Bunny? Yes. Okay. He, he, you know, hit 33 home runs in, in limited playing time. He was already our guy by the time he had that ridiculous 2013 season. As fans, we're still getting to know Nelson Cruz, and we know that the window is short. So as fans, how do we attach ourselves to this guy who's got that questionable past? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think for, for Davis, it really was the kind of fulfillment of the potential that we saw from the moment that trade was made. It was, you know, this guy hasn't panned out, but the potential is there. So, and you know, and you certainly wasn't like 53 came completely out of nowhere. I mean, he had career high of 33 before then, but it felt like, okay, this is, this is the Chris Davis that even, you know, beyond Baltimore that the Texas thought they had, but just never saw. So it did feel more like fulfillment of potential versus, yeah, you're right. A guy that, that really is more of the mercenary that's here for a season, a little bit more um, difficult to embrace knowing that it's going to be, you know, with all likelihood, just a very short stay. Um, so I, I think that's completely fair to, to say with the analysis. The other thing that concerns me, and I, I don't want to go too far down this path, but, you know, you, you look at Nelson Cruz and you look at the demographics of, you know, the, the fans of Baltimore that are going to the Orioles games. You've got Chris Davis, who's this big, hulking, white farm boy that's Christian. And you're just like, hey, he could be my buddy. I could go have a drink with him. And then you have Nelson Cruz and, you know, he's Dominican. He's from the Dominican Republic. And, you know, he's got this shady history with PED use. And I think there's a really hard time for Baltimore citizens to relate to him. And Baltimore is really about that blue-collar, working-class individual. And it doesn't feel like 
Nelson Cruz is in that demographic, whereas Chris Davis looks like someone that could be working off of Harford Road, picking up, you know, rhubarb or something like that if he wasn't a baseball player. So Scott Magnus, shame on you. I'm just saying. Shame on you. I'm just saying that I think it actually, you know, I don't think this way, but I think a lot of people do think this way of I'm more easily able to relate to Chris Davis than I am Nelson Cruz. I know what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? What's that? Shame on you. I'm just saying. Saying that's, I think that's something that we need to give consideration to. I realize. I think that I think there's an opening here to, to enter Luke Scott and some yes. of his views into the conversation. Thank you. And all I'm saying is, I want to see Nelson Cruz's birth certificate. So Scott <laughs> wants to keep the change, is what you're telling me. <laughs> no, I'm just saying there's people out there that are going to have some rub in that regard. But past that, I want to go to the stats. And, and look, Scott is all about people. I'm all keeping about the rub. I'm all about the rub. So let's go to the stats. Um, let's go through Chris Davis's numbers, and I specifically want to focus on WOBA, and I want to focus on um, weighted runs created plus. So Chris Davis in April of last year had a WOBA of .728 and a weighted runs created plus of 208, which is absolutely amazing. Um, and then in, in May, he had a .76 WOBA and a 224 weighted weights, uh, runs created, which again, Two months consistently of just doing absolutely amazing at the plate. And then Nelson Cruz has equally good numbers. He's got a WOBA of April of 0.58 and a weighted runs created of 161. And then in May, 0.748 and 205. So his April was actually worse um, compared to any of the months of Davis or his May month. But I think this May month really, if you look at it, he was you know somewhat better than Davis in terms of looking at um, his K percentage as well. So... Uh, you know, are, which one was better? My opinion is you look at the Wobo and you look at the weight of runs created. I still give the nod to Davis based on just the stats. But I mean, what do you think, Matt? First of all, if, if you can, if you can make it through all that without needing just the espresso part of your drink, good on you. Go ahead. <laughs> That's why there was the pause. I was finishing my sip. Um, yeah. I, I think it, it leans Davis at, at this point and it, I've looked a couple times as, as Cruz has really taken off to say, is there, you know, is there a blog post in there comparing the two and you know, what a start Cruz is off to. And every time I, I go to that, I'm thinking, man, like it just reminds me of how great Davis's season was. Um, and looking at things like uh, one of the things I did before we, we came on was just look at the, the slash lines and um, the bad for the, the two of them. Yeah. And so like, wow, look at, you know, look at Cruz. He's batting 314, 384 on base percentage, 672 slugging percentage. You look at Davis at this time last year, batting 354, 439 on base percentage, 738 slugging percentage, a bad of 397. I mean, the guy was hitting yeah. the cover off the ball. And if it, if it didn't strike out, if it didn't hit it out of the park, chances are it was going to land somewhere, you know, for a hit. Um, and so it's just, it, it made me think like, Man, Davis was the guy when you look at these early numbers that was more likely to drop off. Yeah, well, I mean, but three ninety seven BABIP is absolutely unbelievable. And I realize that he's always had a historically high BABIP based on being a line drive hitter, but three ninety seven just is just like holy cow, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and you compare that to Cruz now, who's at three nineteen. Right. That. So, well, um, that's actually a good thing though, because again, it means that he's right around his historical average, so he might be able to continue this consistency of getting hits and maybe slugging it just as hard. Yeah. Well, that's why I think that the Davis, it's a more favorable, favorable comparison at this point of the year to Davis in terms of the numbers, but in terms of looking at those and what's sustainable over a full season, it's like, well, wow, Cruz's numbers look more sustainable at this point in the season than Davis's did last year. And obviously Davis didn't keep all those categories up and things did start to average out some, but it makes me think like, why not? Cruz could, Cruz could go a long way with this given um, that, that his totals overall are a little bit more realistic, a little more in line with his career numbers um, than what Davis is doing. Well, uh, Matt, let me just uh, peel the curtain back a little bit here. This is the part where I dumb down the numbers conversation. Um, and let me just ask you this. Is there anything to be uh, considered about comparing the two of them in a vacuum versus their role in the respective clubs, the, the 2013 Orioles versus the 2014 Orioles? It, it feels like Nelson Cruz is... Um, 2014 is, is impressive, yes, but it's also so incredibly vital because he's almost single-handedly keeping the Orioles' offense and the team in the hunt um, through this early part of the season. I mean, do, you know that, what, do you know what Raider runs created plus is? Does that weigh any 
at all any? You have no clue what Waiter Runs Creative Plus is. We had this discussion earlier this season. Let me ask my question. I gave you your time. All right. I just want to make sure you just didn't know what that stat meant. I think you're just like, yeah, that just seems like RBIs. So do you you think that that it's important that we look about what they bring to the club versus uh, looking at them in in a vacuum? Well, that's when we talk about the, the case of embracing you know, the, the players and why Cruz hasn't been more embraced. Uh, if nothing else, we should all be grateful to, to Nelson Cruz for what he's doing um, because he's basically keeping, you know, largely keeping that lineup afloat until other guys' bats come around. Um, and that's, you know, it'll be interesting to see that obviously there's a question of can Cruz keep it up, but let's say that you know, every time Chris Davis hits a home run now, Twitter blows up with he's back. Um, obviously it's going to take more than that single three homer game or even a homer here and there, but let's see, say Davis really starts hitting his stride and, and overall the lineup gels more consistency. Manny Machado starts at least hitting more doubles, but maybe more homers. Is there a certain point at which that Cruz really does fall back to the, the you know, from the story and the Orioles start playing better overall. And we start thinking about, Oh, well, when Manny's bat really came alive, that saved the season or when Chris Davis finally got locked in again, um, I think there's a good chance that when we look back on the season, if the Orioles do in fact ever get it all together with the pitching and hitting at the same time, that Cruz's contributions here early on kind of get forgotten for whoever that guy is perceived to be that finally got locked in and finally got that lineup going on a regular basis. So it's almost like some of your fans are embracing Cruz fully, but I think they'd be pretty happy to, or if not happy to, pretty willing to forget if one of the guys that's more, you know, you guys used the term before, the Baltimore guys, if one of those guys starts coming through and the team starts looking better than you know, 500 or a couple games above, if his contributions aren't, aren't minimized. So I think it is important to recognize what he's done to this point and, and the value he's brought here as the team tries to figure it out um, during some of these early struggles. Well, hey, we, we introduced this segment by, by calling it Wicked Game. And, and so I think that, uh, you know, bringing it back to Nelson Cruz, how, how cruel is it that the baseball gods, you know, had him have this, uh, hit by pitch on his, on his hand, take him out of the game? Uh, you know, today's an off day, so we don't really know how serious it is or how, how serious it's going to be, but it's just crazy. It's one of those things that happens in baseball where things are going so well and then suddenly it, it all gets ripped away. It is a wicked game. And uh, that's enough out of you, Scott. We have a strict no singing policy. Want to fall in love? Oh, God. When did the no singing policy come into effect? It, I'm disappointed to hear this. We we punish ourselves after we do it every once in a while. Should I start taking off my clothing now or later? Later. Okay. Um, but you know, it's kind of a kind of an allegory for for the entire season. I I think because it seems like whenever the Orioles get one thing together or going the other gets ripped away from them. So, you know, the, the hitting is, is absolutely on fire, and they're scoring six and seven runs a game, except that's the time that the pitching is giving up eight or nine runs a game. And then the pitching gets itself together, and, you know, the, the pitching is, is keeping the opponents to two or three runs a game, and that's when the offense absolutely disappears. Kind of makes it rough for Orioles fans uh, at this point in the season, does it not? Oh, it, it absolutely does, and, and we've seen kind of that, that pattern here early on where, as you say, things start going right, then something bad happens. And I feel like, honestly, there's, there's for me, a, a kind of post-2012 era in Orioles baseball where everything that happens post-2012 gives me a greater appreciation for 2012. And in, in this case, I think about, you know, Cruz gets hit on the hand. I'm immediately thinking about Nick Marcakis. And how when that happened late in the season, I thought, ah, there it goes. We, you know, I was finally waiting for the issue to drop, and it's dropped. And the Orioles just figure it out and, and move on. And it just it gives me a great appreciation for, one, how having just a lockdown bullpen will go a long way for you. But two, like how magical that season was in terms of things just working out. Even when bad things happen, something could happen after that. So, um gives me a great appreciation seeing stuff this season thinking, yeah, you know, this happened in 2012, they would have called someone up from, from Norfolk that, you know, used to be a barnstormer for, you know, whatever independent league team. And, oh, now he's going to hit 25, 30 homers this year because why not? Um, <clears throat> so we could use a little bit more of that, that magic this season. And I just hope that, you know, crews can keep on, keep, keep form and that finally uh, all these different things that have been, happening in a quirky sort of way that they can just survive long enough and stay afloat um, to get to a point where 
guys are healthy. They are locked in. And, and let's face it, I mean, they're, uh, whether you want to call it luck or whatever you want to term put put on it, a couple games above 500, still in the thick of a division that in most years would already have you know, someone really out in front. Yes, Toronto's played great, but you know, the division overall hasn't played up to its potential. So for all that's happened, they're still well-positioned. Um, it's just how long can they be well-positioned before they finally need things to fall into place. Yeah, I, I actually, you know, this whole thing of being right around 500 really doesn't bother me too much. I was going through some of the historical records. The 1966 Orioles finished... Uh, August and September, just in those those months with both 500 records, they finished 14 and 14 and 13 and 13. So going into the postseason, um, not a very strong way to go into the postseason. We know what happened in 66. In 73, the Orioles went to the ALCS and lost to Oakland three games to two. But they started the season after May, three games below 500. Similar situation happened in 74 where the Orioles started three games under 500 and again lost to the Oakland Athletics in the ALCS. And in 75, the Orioles started even worse. They started eight games under 500 at the end of May, and they went on to win 90 games that season and were second in the American League East. So there's a you know a long history of here of teams that are really good teams winning a lot of games, but having bad stretches like this. So I don't think we can discount saying, oh, you know, this team's not very good because they played 500 ball to this point. It's a long season. You just need to be going on a roll. And looking at some of these Earl Weaver teams from the 70s, they might not have started off strong, but they finished the season really strong and generally finished with winning percentages right around like 600 to 700 to end the season, very similar to how 2012 ended. A man after my own heart. I love the, the historical comparison. And I I think they, you know, everyone throws out the term sample size and it, it gets to the point that it's annoying, but that's the sort of thing there where that's, saying let's go beyond just sample size let's show you how in history this has played out that yes a, a, you know, a mediocre month a bad month uh, by a couple months doesn't doom your season um, overall and for me one of the things i looked at last season looking at more recently is you know win streaks you see what's happening in boston they lose 10 it's like the season's over then they you know rip off seven and um, that's that's still going <clears throat> and that's what like last year is the Orioles were just kind of hanging around i was like they just need that long win streak and um, and taking, you know, again, more recently about win streaks, but then you go back and look at it and it's like their great teams didn't have these long extended win streaks. That wasn't the deal breaker. It, you know, it, it is a, a long season and one good stretch, one bad stretch doesn't, doesn't doom you. Um, one bad month or a couple, you know, mediocre months that doesn't, doesn't doom you either. So there's still plenty of reason to, to hold on some, some optimism. Um, and just hopefully this will this will pay off here as we get deeper into the season and learn more about what this team's all about. And the thing I keep thinking about is, you know, I've looked at you know, listen to the game and I'll look at the um, box score and I'll be thinking, man, this is this isn't the lineup we were talking about before the season. You know, because of all these injuries, they just haven't had everything in place when they were talking about how great this lineup was going to be. I mean, they've really had a lot of names in there that. <clears throat> you probably didn't expect to see on the roster, much less um, in there seeing action. So uh, there, there's still a lot of seasons we played and still a lot of time to get guys helping and get that uh, together. So it you know, looks more like the lineup that we expected before the season. And hopefully along the way, um, we'll get to see if, if there's any consistency with the, the pitching. Because honestly, at the end of the day, that's what you got to have. Yeah. And, you know, you and Scott talk about, you know, the historical uh, nature of this Orioles franchise, which has had winners and, and how, you know, you can't look too much at sample size. Uh, again, going back to the dumb fan perspective, which is really what I bring here. Um, I, I think that you had a restorative season in 2012 in which, you know, Scott and I started the podcast, uh, at the beginning of the 2012 season, uh, expecting this club to be terrible. Um, you know, I predicted they were going to lose a hundred games and against all odds, and against all the baseball experts that told us otherwise, the team was really good. And sure, they were upside down in, in run differential. And, you know, you had guys like Mark Reynolds being major contributors and all this other weird, crazy stuff that happened. But at the same time, the end of the season, you know, ended up with the Orioles being in the playoffs after finishing a crazy hot September. And so, you know, these seasons like, you know, 89, and 2012, which I think will go down in kind of that same, uh, you know, beloved lore, uh, lore as, as 89. Th- these kind of seasons kind of remind us that maybe we lay too much at the feet of numbers and maybe we ought to just experience it as fans one game at a time. Thanks, Bob Ryan. Really appreciate that, Bob <laughs> Ryan. 
<laughs> no, I, I, I like that. And that was part of you know, the, the joy of 2012 as well. I mean, I've, I've come to see the, the value in, in going deeper with the numbers, but I think that um, you know, there's too much reliance on them at times. And I think that you know, there are people that have a deep expertise in it, but then I think there are others that just, you know, know that these are terms you're supposed to say and um, but maybe don't get to the deeper meaning of it and the numbers help to explain and and you know basic statistics right they can explain and they can can predict to some degree but i just love seeing in 2012 and the run differential was a great case of it where it was almost like that it's almost like you you heard folks screaming well this can't be happening this can't be happening it's like yes it can you know like it's not an absolute um and and that's even the, the beauty when you get to the postseason that all the postseason is a small sample size, and so crazy things happen. And so I can still remember as a kid, you know, Francisco Cabrera for the the Braves coming up and getting the game winning hit. And it's like that that's an isolated case, but I still remember the guy's name and the and the play to this day. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, it was be- beautiful to watch them piece that together in 2012. And you know, it was okay. We can use you for a few weeks and get the most out of you. And, and we got an, another part here that we can can fit in. Um, so I think that was also something instructive in, in that, that um, almost you, you give Buck enough players, enough guys that can give him some good time, and you know, he'll he'll piece it together somehow. I can only imagine, you know, what what's going on in his brain as he's thinking through, you know, well if I can get this guy to this, this guy to do that, he's hot. Let's bring him up for a while. And it's just it's it's fun, and I think that's that's one of the important things as we do get more into numbers and and learn and, and see what they can offer us, it's important not to lose the fun of the game, understanding that there are plenty of times, many of times, where it still remains unpredictable, and um, that's one of the reasons we continue to watch. Well, Matt Taylor from The Roar from 34, one of my favorite authors when it comes to the Orioles. Uh, I could probably listen to you talk all night, but it would be an impolite use of your time. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate your insight on the Orioles, and we look forward to reading more from you. Uh, is there anything uh, from the blog that you can you can pimp out tonight? Um, I, my main message for pimping it out would be hang in there, <laughs> because <laughs> my publishing schedule is sometimes erratic, but uh, I promise I'll, I'll get stuff up there. And um, yeah, I I appreciate anyone that's, that's reading the stuff, and uh, so just just. Keep keep at it. Keep keep dedicated. Check back, and uh, we'll have some some good stuff. And I think that one of the topics we talked about earlier, that topic of win streaks, is going to be uh, a topic of a, a post here soon. And um, so, just uh, appreciate anyone anyone reading the blog, and just keep checking back. All right, so everyone, go and follow uh, Matt Taylor at Roar from Thirty Four on Twitter, and also go to roarfrom 34com to catch up on everything about the Baltimore Orioles, including humor, history, homerism since 2006. Matt, thanks for coming on to the show tonight. Uh, Thanks, gentlemen. I enjoyed it. When it comes to twisting, I just got to keep insisting. Oh, baby. You sure do swing. Oh, crap. When it comes to twisting, I just got to keep insisting. Oh, daddy. You are the king. Baby, you've got me beat up and down, inside out and across. Oh, yeah. But in the middle of the night, when the moon is shining bright, you're the boss. Yes, Jake. Once again, I'm the boss again this week. Scott, I think, I, I think you just doubled up on me, 6-3. I did. 6-3. Scotty, too hotty, is up. Could you stop that? Could you stop with the winning? It's it's not a good look for you. You know, I was actually watching Pulp Fiction again this weekend, and um, there was a great thing on there saying either you're an Elvis person or you're a Beatles person. I'm a Beatles person. Uh, yeah, no. So I was thinking to myself, I'm not sure if I can keep going with Elvis based off of that quote from that movie. But eventually, you know, the whole thing was you've got to pick between one or the other, and I would still go with the Beatles. But I'm going to go okay with, since the Beatles don't have a cover of You're the Boss, I'm going to go with Elvis. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go deep into the catalog this okay. week, and I'm gonna try to find a song that that features the word "boss." Okay, good luck with that. Uh, so, Jake, um, last week we picked um, K's per walk ratio, and I went with Preston Gimet, and you went with Zach Burton. I won this week five K's to one walk, and you had Zach Burton who had two K's for one walk. So, Jake, I win this fantasy boss once again. 
Thoughts? I hate this game. I hate you, and I hate everything. Okay, I'm going to give you an, a, a one that I think that both of us can agree on. That's a pretty easy stat. I'm going to go with extra base hits this week. Okay. So we're just looking at doubles, triples, and home runs. This is difficult. Just count. Yeah. Yeah, this is difficult because uh, a lot of the offense sucks. Mm-hmm. And the only part of the offense that's actually moving may not play sometime this week, depending on how the crew's situation that works is correct. its way out. Um, and even some of the more dependable parts of the offense, like Nick Markakis and J.J. Hardy, are really hitting you know slap singles more than anything else. <laughs> Yes, I'm stalling. Yes. Jeez. Um, so you you think this was a good category for me to pick? Yeah, you suck. Okay. Um, I'm trying to pick between two really lousy choices. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with Manny Machado. Okay. I am going to go with Adam Jones. I think Adam Jones is starting to turn around. And I think he's eventually going to come out of it. So I'm going to go with Adam Jones. God, I hope you win, but I think I might have a chance. Yes. I think we both have a chance. I, I just think that both players are starting to come on hot, and we'll see what happens. Can I give you my honorable mention? Sure. Uh, Jonathan Scope. There ain't no way in hell. Okay. Yeah, there ain't no way in hell. I tell you what, if Jonathan Scope wins, I'll give you two points, okay? I don't want your pity. Okay. I'm going to win fair and square. There's no asterisk here, my friend. All right. Well, speaking about pity, some people deserve our pity from last week. It's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. That is right. It is time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. In this segment, we go through the Orioles who had a great week, those that had a bad week, and those who just make us ashamed to be Orioles fans. As is our custom here, I'm going to go first so that Scott can go last for his ugly. His rants greatly exceed my own in terms of anger, inappropriateness, and vigor. So for my good... Specifically vigor. (laughs) For my good this week, I am going to go with J.J. Hardy. J.J. Hardy has been hitting the cover off the ball, even if he is not driving the long ball. J.J. Hardy has become a really dependable bat in the lineup, and though he is not driving the ball, he's feeding the offensive machine, particularly when it gets around to uh, to manufacturing runs. Buck tried to put him up at the top of the lineup earlier and didn't like the immediate return, but I think it's time for him to think about putting J.J. Hardy back into that number two hole because Hardy is really red hot right now, even if he isn't slugging like crazy. So J.J. Hardy is my good for this week. I totally agree with you. In fact, I think that it would be even interesting to put J.J. Hardy in the number one hole. He's actually had his greatest career success out of the leadoff spot um, in terms of where he has batted in the order. And I think, you know, looking at his performance versus Nick Markakis, I think J.J. Hardy would actually be a more interesting person to be putting in that number one spot. I know the argument's going to be is J.J. Hardy is as slow as dirt, but Nick Markakis isn't much faster, in my opinion. Yeah, the thing is, I trust them both with the bat, so I'm not going to argue one over the other. I I think, though, that J.J. Hardy would be an intriguing number two spot. Okay. Uh, My obvious good is going to be Nelson Cruz. Duh. 476 average, 556 on base percentage, 1.190 slugging percentage, 684 Woba, 351 weighted runs created, plus four home runs this week, eight RBIs, three doubles. Oh, and by the way, one stolen base. Yeah. (laughs) Nelson Cruz, you are good. I hope that hand is nice and healed by the time Tuesday comes around. Oh, God, please get better. Oh, God, please get better. Yes. All right, my bad for this week, and you're going to have to excuse me because on my stat sheet, I'm going to have to scroll all the way to the bottom here. My bad for this week is Adam Jones. Uh, in 25 at-bats, the guy got four hits in the last seven games. He's uh, he's just not getting it done. He batted 160. He has an on-base percentage of 148. He slugged 200, uh, 200, and though he has two RBIs, he brings very little else to the plate this week. Adam Jones, not a good week. You are bad. Um, my bad for the week is actually going to be my fantasy boss winner from this week, and it's Preston Gimmett. He came out in two games this week, and I gave up two, two uh, gave up two home runs, um, both two run shots. So from a person that really 
basically was perfect for the whole year. This is his one week where he basically faltered. So I will never again pick him as a fantasy boss because it only leads to bad things. Are we down to the ugly? We're down to the ugly. All right. It pains me to do this, but Chris Davis, this week, you are ugly in 25 at-bats in the last seven days. Chris Davis has two hits. Two. One. Two. But here's where things get interesting. Scott, in the last seven days and last seven games, Chris Davis has one walk. And would you care to guess how many strikeouts? Um, three. Thirteen. Wow. 13 strikeouts and 25 at-bats. Two hits. Guess how many RBIs in that time? Six. Not a one. Wow. Chris Davis is ugly. Going through a rough stretch. Uh, Buck Showalter dropped him to fifth in the lineup, which is good. Get While he's cold, get him as far away from the middle of his lineup as you can. This week, Chris Davis, you are on notice. You are ugly. Jake, I only have one thing to say to you. So, Jake, my ugly for this week, I'm going to go outside the Orioles, and it's, it's something that I really feel strongly about. And it's what people have been talking about, and I think it's several people's ugly this week, and it's David Ortiz. David Ortiz, with his comments about war and you know his David Price thing, is one thing. But I want to focus on another comment that he made, and there was a great article on SB Nation about this. And it was commenting about David Price and his sexist terms that he's been throwing out over the past few days. So I want to play this this this. Uh, video for you really quickly and just listen to some of the comments that david ortiz makes i had no respect for him no more in your opinion was that done on purpose what do you think oh. there you go that answer your question given the conversation you had last year how surprised were you when that happened i was surprised for a minute that i watched the video you know that everything was cool you know what i mean can't stop can be acting like a little girl out there i mean you're not gonna win all the time when you give it up, that's an experience for the next time, you know, but you're going to be acting like a little, you know, time you give it up, bounce back like that and put your teammates in jeopardy, that's going to cost you. Oh, yeah, I was going to let it know. I going to let it know. I respect everybody in this league, and I get the same respect from everybody, you know, and if you're mad because I take you day two eyes, let me let you know. I got almost 500 homers in this league. That's part of the game, son. David, you didn't see him take as much issue. Huh? What did David say to you? Nothing. He know he screwed up. He did that on his own. No manager saying him. No player was comfortable with the situation. He did that on his own. Which is... He can get somebody else hurt. Can be doing that. Okay, so that's David Ortiz making some comments to the local media out in the Boston area. I think it was really interesting listening to that interview... Um, not so much about the profanity that was dropped, but the specific type of terminology that was used. And the article really touches on this strongly. It's the use of the word, uh, the B word, the use of calling a, another individual a little girl in a pro, you know, in a derogatory standpoint and constantly referring to David Price as a her as opposed to him. And basically, um, feminizing another individual and using, you know, an aspect of saying a female or a woman is a downgrade or degrading to individuals. This whole aspect of, you know, us wanting to, um, you know, keep equality between males and females. And, you know, going back to last week with the Ray Rose situation, if we want to change the way our society, you know, views and acts towards women, we've got to hold our athletes to a higher standard here. And Major League Baseball needs to come out and let David Ortiz know that this is not acceptable to be using this terminology against other players, but also degrading women in this fashion. I don't know that it's Major League Baseball's place to start policing the athletes, uh, you know, thoughts and words. Right. But he comes off looking like an absolute ass. Well, I mean, it's David Ortiz. That's obvious to be the case anyway. But Major League Baseball really needs to give a consideration to they're trying to go after a new demographic. You know, they have MTV2 um, outside the lines with David Ortiz. This is a kind of situation where you don't want this individual going out there and being the face of Major League Baseball. You know, this article goes in and says 45% of the population that currently watches Major League Baseball are females. 
you cannot be turning away half your population and audience by making these kind of comments. Look, he was obviously upset. You know, he absolutely he was he was, he was so point, was Troy Hunter. He was pointing out that he has almost 500 uh, home runs in this league, son, uh, because that's something that he feels is important. I, I feel it's important for us as a society to let David Ortiz get his aggression out. I say we just line up bullpen phones, <laughs> hand them a bat, and say, David. Until you feel better, you just take this bat and you do whatever is in your heart. Okay. So I want everyone to, at the end of this podcast to go and look at this SB Nation article. It's called David Ortiz Opens Mouth, Casual Sexism Spills Out. It's written by Mike Bates, and it comes highly recommended from me. And we'll go ahead and we'll put that in the show notes. Scott, I agree. He's ugly. I think it's time to blow the save. All right. Let's go ahead and blow the save. Um, you know, we were talking to Matt Taylor from Roar from 34 and, um, you know, there's been a lot of negativism and, you know, really, you know, just terrible, terrible opinion. Look, we're only a third of the way through the season. It's not time to give up. It's not time to start sinking the ship. There's been talk on people saying we need to start trading away players like Nelson Cruz in order to get prospects. Slow your roll, everybody. It's not as bad as you think it is. Things are going to rebound. Good teams go through bad periods like we talked to Matt Taylor about. This team just needs to put it together, and I think they're going to do that sooner rather than later. Yes, I know I sound like Rick Dempsey, but I have faith and encouragement because of that 2012 season and because of Buck Showalter. So with that, Jake, I think it's time for us to say our goodbyes. Well, in that case, Baltimore and beyond, I will bid you all a fond adieu adieu. Good night, Baltimore. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.